Hey everyone, before we get to today's content, I wanted to tell you about a brand new podcast from the 11FS Podcast Network, the FinTech Marketing Podcast hosted by me, Eric Fulweiler, Chief Marketing Officer of 11FS. Over the last couple months, I've been speaking to heads of marketing from the world's leading FinTech and financial service brands, Monzo, Revolut, MasterCard, Zero, Starling, Lemonade, and many more. We heard their insights and ideas on how they build brand and drive growth for their businesses, and now we can bring them to you. So if you're into FinTech, FS, marketing, which I assume you are, uh, please check out our brand new podcast. Search for FinTech Marketing Podcast on any podcast platform. Subscribe, share, leave us a review, and please do let us know your thoughts. Appreciate the support. From 11FS, I'm David Breer, and this is FinTech Insider News. This week, we bring you SoFi snaps up Galileo, Cabbage cuts off its clients, and Swedish high school to produce sustainable wearables. All this and much, much more on today's show. Welcome to episode 417 of FinTech Insider. My name is David Breer, and today I'm joined by my colleague and co-host, Mr. Simon Taylor. How's it going, Simon? Really well, thank you. All things considered, very grateful to have lots of work to do and lots of clients to speak to. So yeah, uh, really well. How about you? Uh, This whole sort of isolation thing is getting more difficult considering it's like sunny and lovely outside. Like I really want to be sort of running around taking advantage of it. And uh, I'll be honest, after three weeks of two children staying predominantly inside, I think they're about ready to kill each other. So, uh, you know, actually uh, venturing out soon would be good. But um, obviously, we're not allowed to just yet, are we? So we'll uh, we'll be staying inside. Uh, As always, we're joined by some super awesome guests. Uh, Making her FinTech Insider News debut, we have... Isabella Kaminska, who is FT Alphaville editor for the Financial Times. How's it going, Izzy? Good, thank you. How are you? Really good. How are you adjusting to uh, home, homeward bound working? Oh, no, not well. I don't like it. <laughs> I would be in the office any day if I could be. Well, uh, hopefully that's a day soon, hey? Um, and making welcome returns to the FinTech Insider News, we have Ollie Betts, who is the co-founder and CEO of OpenWorks. How's it going, Ollie? Uh, really good. Thanks, guys. Yeah, I'm hoping for better Wi-Fi than the breakfast show earlier this week. We experienced that. The the pleasures of rural life. I get fresh air and gardens, but I get no Wi-Fi. So we're fingers crossed. We will keep our fingers crossed for you. And also returning, we have Tanya Andreessen, who is the Managing Director and Editor-in-Chief over at Fintech Futures. How's it going, Tanya? Hiya. Thanks for inviting me back. All good. Uh, myself and my houseplants are all saying hello. <laughs> okay, so Tanya's at the point where she's speaking to her houseplants, so I think we're probably ready to go. I mean, they, they will if, start. They will start talking back at any point. <laughs> Wonderful. <laughs> all right. Well, we'll look to find out their views on all of the fintech news this week. Okay, let's get on with the show. First up, we have a story over on Forbes, which is SoFi to buy Galileo for $1.2 billion. Uh, so San Francisco fintech SoFi is buying their own payments provider, Galileo, who also powers payments for Robinhood, TransferWise, and Chime, among many others. Um, $1.2 billion, that's a pretty big fee for, particularly sort of in these times, Simon. I mean, Galileo have been making some pretty good noises, haven't they, over the last sort of 12 months or so. But um, this one seems like a pretty big big fee for, for a company that hasn't been around for, for too long. 
Yeah, they've not been around for a long time. And the interesting thing to me about the Galileo acquisition of SoFi is why have they bought them um, and how have they paid? So it looks like actually uh, only a very small proportion of this payment is in cash. Uh, I think somewhere I saw reported around 77 million US dollars um, and the overwhelming majority of it is in equity. So why would they Why would they buy them? Are they capturing their upstream supplier? We know that last year, uh, Chime and Robinhood had an outage when Galileo indeed went down. Um, we saw similar things in the UK with a lot of the fintechs with uh, Revolut and Monzo when the supplier GPS, I believe, went down. Um, and so is this capturing that to make more sense of it? Or is this SoFi um, really uh, looking to expand their offering into becoming more of a bank and away from just being a lender and having somebody that can give them a cards capability might be a part of that. But what does this mean for people like Chime and Acorns and Robinhood? They can't feel good about this. Um, I mean, to, to a point, it feels like a bit of a false valuation to that scale then, doesn't it? If only so much of this is actually coming in actual cash and so much of it is in stock that arguably has probably dropped by 50% at least over the last couple of weeks, then Izzy, what do you think on this one? You're nodding along. I, I think that's a really good analysis. I mean, it seems to me there's a sort of um, mutual interest in supporting your own payments p- provider, isn't there? Potentially, yeah. I guess if they're uh, if they're sort of pushing upstream and and maybe solidifying something that they've got there. But I guess to your point, um, Simon, they've they've not been without their issues in the last sort of six months or so. So it seems I don't know. This seems seems like an odd one from a timing perspective. Yeah, timing-wise, it's interesting. Um, you've got to wonder if this was in the works long before the coronavirus crisis really hit us. I would imagine it probably was, but did that impact the commercials? I do now have the numbers in front of me. It looks like $75 million in cash, $250 million in debt, and $875 million in equity. Uh, so this is it, it does look like a lot of, lot of funny money. Uh, but then you wind the clock back 12 months ago, and we were talking about world pay and TSIS and global payments, these massive... 20, 40 billion dollar deals in the payment space. Um, so, how much of this is uh, did Galileo have long term annual revenues, annual recurring revenues that were being bought here, or is this really about buying the supplier? It looks like that second thing because you want you're not buying the recurring business. Um, but even though arguably Galileo may have a newer, more modern tech platform that would compete with a WorldPay or or somebody like that, what surprises me is somebody like that isn't the acquirer here. Hmm. Interesting. What do you think to this one, Tanya? Well, uh, I think that 1.2 billion headline makes a much better headline than 75 million, right? <laughs> so, but I agree with, with what's been said above. It's an interesting, it's almost like a merger, I guess, rather than an acquisition in a way. Although SoFi did say that Galileo will continue to operate as a completely standalone entity. So perhaps that will give some kind of peace of mind to the current clients, which are competitors such as Robinhood and Chime and TransferWise. Um, but to the point of why would TSIS or WorldPay buy Galileo, like why would they? They already have loads and loads of their own payment pay tech and technologies that they have acquired over their decades and decades of existence. So I don't think there is anything that would be of any interest, but perhaps for somebody like SoFi or whoever else who is not in the payment space, this is an interesting proposition if they manage to keep it as a technology company, as a separate technology company that they offer 
um, services to other financial institutions, then there could be recurring revenue. And if the technology is as good and doesn't go down the same way as it did last year or the same way GPS did, you know, in the UK, then um, I guess there is a good business case. But time will tell. Yeah, I mean, moving up up and down your own value chain sort of makes sense sometimes if you can get sort of efficiencies. But is he, uh, is it, does this really look like a, a good deal? Well, it just strikes me as odd because, <clears throat> you know, in merger arbitrage, in a crisis, you're supposed to pick up deeply discounted companies. You don't, you know, there, there's a reason why there's a dearth of deals because people are waiting to see where, you know, the bottom comes in and then, you know, the vultures come in. If anyone who still has the financing to do it um, comes into bargain hunt. This doesn't seem like bargain hunting. Therefore, there must be something else going on. That's just my sort of sceptical take. Hmm. Yeah, I agree with that. It doesn't. It doesn't feel like this is a bargain for either of the the players, really. If you were, if you arguably um, on SoFi's side, then you'd wait as long as you could to get as cheap a deal as you could have done without having to give up all of that stock. Um, on the other side of this, from a Galileo's perspective, then you know, given some of the other players that have gone for huge amounts of money on, purely on a cash basis, then uh, if they were going to do this, they would have done this earlier and got a bigger valuation. If they were uh, going to do it later, they'd have to wait very, uh, you know, a, a long while to get the market back, wouldn't they? But it's, um, I, I guess, it, sometimes it feels like people probably have a deeper strategy than we than we understand on these ones but uh, if if not then they've got more money than sense but what do you think ollie i think it's really interesting i i don't know the businesses brilliantly well i think you're right around is this about sort of almost consolidating their own supply chain or is it quite an interesting hedge where you sort of look at one business relying on lending which we're gonna you know go through an interesting time on and then the other on payments which feels like it's a constant in both downturn and upturn cycle so is it is it a really clever hedge but like people have said it feels like the deal was struck way before the crisis so i'm probably uh over strategizing on whether it's a hedge or not sorry uh yeah i wonder though um how much is payments volume down i mean certainly the payments players i've been speaking to have, have talked about 20 30 percent because retail point of sale is down a little bit so the payments industry itself is in kind of a different place and and how much of this is uh, really about uh, the perception of what galileo did versus the reality because underneath galileo you had bancor who provided the underlying banking services so that it the whole thing's like a layer cake. Um, it, I, I saw recently that um, Railsbank have announced an investment from Visa, and I would actually put Galileo and Railsbank in almost a similar category. Granted, Galileo has um, arguably been around for a bit longer and more maturity of offering, but you can almost think of them as being similar, whereas Bancor being actually holds a banking license, holds the underlying uh, deposits and, and, and accounts. Those are different offerings. So, you know, does what SoFi really want from this became the question, and I don't know if, if the folks on, on the line have views. Uh, I think um, arguably, I imagine we're not going to find that out for for a long period of time until this one maybe makes sense if uh, if it if it sort of all goes through in the way that they have. But uh, probably want to keep an eye on and see, come back to you when uh, when this uh, starts to make a little bit more sense. Moving on to the next story, though, so um, one that we can probably say with uh, pretty uh, pretty clear clarity on what's going on here. So story over on Bloomberg: Cabbage suspends credit for small business clients. So customers allegedly received no notice that their credit lines were. 
being cut. One client's credit dropped from $22,000 to $0 overnight. Uh, so in an email to staff ca- from Cabbage CEO Robert Frowine, uh, allegedly wrote, as of last night, all lending has now been turned off. So service representatives were also allegedly instructed not to tell customers that their credit had been suspended. I mean, this is a pretty big move. I mean, I don't think this is going to be the last one of these that, that we'll kind of see. And it's pretty tough times for anybody with a big lending back book right now. You've gone from uh, your book looking pretty healthy and pretty stable to um, the whole world changing over a two or three week period, right? So uh, it feels like um, tough times if you're a lender uh, in cabbages side of things. What do you think, Tanja? Uh, I think this is a very good case in point that not all fintech is a wonderful savior for the financial services and for the customers out there. At the end of the day, they are a business. They're there to make money. They've already laid off quite a lot of people. Um, uh, That Bloomberg article was very interesting because it mentioned um, some uh, some customers saying that before all this happened, they received phone calls daily from Cabbage asking them to borrow more money. And then suddenly, without any notice, that tap has been turned off, you know, altogether. Um, What I find quite audacious, I guess, is that uh, the Cabbage spokesperson compared what they are doing to the manufacturers who are now producing ventilators for the hospitals And uh, I think that's taken it a bit too far. So stop lending and stop giving money to people when they really need it is really not comparable to Ford or Tesla or whoever else starting to make, you know, ventilators to save people's lives. So on the one hand, you know, I understand why Cabbage is doing it. They're a business. But on the other, it's pretty harsh pretty harsh. Yeah, yeah, I'm not sure I quite see the lateral there between those two for for sure in terms of doing it. But I mean, Izzy, like globally, there are going to be a lot of lenders who are going to be sitting there with a very similar problem, right? You've got a book that's kind of turning very quickly, either from personal loans or from a SME lending perspective, right? There's a lot of big companies globally who do lending. Are we going to see a lot more of these, do you think? Um, so I, I don't know enough about Cabbage's business um, structure and, and model, but how 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 are they funded? How what's the source of their um, their funding that they pass on as credit? Are they are they like a are they a fully funded operator? Or are they a bank, are they classified as a bank? What, what sort of where's their credit originate from? I think they're classified as a bank and are deploying from their balance sheet. So they um, have they're, they're they've got a bank bank license. So in so then has you know it, it becomes a question of how smaller operators are going to be supported by government. I think. I mean, it's it's a much bigger picture, and so what this really tells us is that whilst there have been huge programs of support from the Federal Reserve and liquidity is really very um, abundantly available to lenders, the question is why, are, why what's, what's the friction that's stopping Cabbage from accessing some of that liquidity? Because in theory, the Federal, action, Federal Reserve action should be there to maintain lending support. So what is the, what is the actual underlying issue that's preventing them from, from, from reaching that sort of um, support? Yeah. I mean, I think there's there's a, a big thing here about, I think, the support being distributed 
because you, you're going to be looking at a, um, a balance sheet that's folding up with defaults of, of loans very quickly. I think the access of the support, particularly over in the US, has been very, very slow, isn't it? I think the distribution of those funds has kind of led to a lot of companies struggling quite quickly. But it, it, to your point, it's it's where are they? How fine a balance? How fine a balance is their balance sheet that actually within you know four weeks of a, a swing in the operation that actually they're they're having to freeze lending in a period where essentially people need lending more than more than ever. You you had a point on that, Ollie. Yeah, I think it's. Um, I don't think it will be the um, the last one of these that we see sort of take this action. I think the reality is it's it's really difficult to lend to anyone now at the moment in the current climate. I think it's even more difficult to lend to small businesses. Um, so that sort of the difference between the government support that in most countries they're trying to funnel through to small business in the form of grants feels like um, the most promising option for them. I think this ultimately comes down to, for me, underwriting decisions. How how can you risk assess a business right now? No one's been through a cycle like this. Cabbage didn't even go through the the first financial crisis, so they don't even know what a downturn looks like. Um, Make that worse. This is a different downturn than the one before. This is a sudden, sharp shock of um, just uh, underlying uh, lack of income and therefore profitability into businesses that you're trying to underwrite. So I, th- I won't be the last one we see, in my opinion. I just, I, you know, I've done underwriting in the past. I don't know how you'd underwrite um, anything right now with any confidence, even if it's government backed. Um, I just don't know how you get to a comfortable decision that you should be lending the money. Is he? I think, yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, the big picture here is that valuation itself is up in the air. I mean, we just don't know what the value of anything is. Um, and that that applies to equity. That applies, you know, how do you value a corporate when you don't know if they will be able to post a dividend, whether um, their cash flow is going to be maintained over the near future or not? It's just impossible. So, um, you know, Goldman Sachs put out a note just today sort of pointing out how difficult it is to value a company, um, even like a big company. So across, apply that to smaller companies and it's almost, you know, impossible. So, um, I'm not at all surprised. And uh, in terms of underwriting, the only real um, option these little lenders have is is if their if their loans are government guaranteed. And I think there are some measures to try and do that. But whether they, I, I think we'll come on to this in a bit. But it's it's the, the administrative um, burden of trying to process these um, these support functions. That's that's really the big issue now. And I think that's to be fair to Cabbage. What they've said is that they've they've focused on that shift. Um, so they've they they securitize all their own lending, and they don't know that they could push any of that risk back out to the market in a securitized form because they are expecting a high level of delinquencies, and they don't know how much exactly as, as you've all been saying. Um, but then, uh, if there's there is this government facility coming, as, as you say, we'll, we'll probably cover that more broadly. Should they not be focused on that? I don't know that that's wrong. Although I don't know that it's also so should exactly be positioned as making ventilators. Um, it's it's not the same thing. <laughs> I, I think um, I think to Tanya's point earlier on. I think it's it's. Um, I mean these these are companies or uh, in in most. Uh, dire need at this stage so it's going to be really interesting to see what it does from a brand reputational perspective uh sort of coming out the other side of this one whether uh people who you know it's always um 
warm and fuzzy feelings when everything is fine, isn't it? And then uh, when there's an issue, then I think you really sort of understand the the brand, don't you? But um, I hope these guys come out of it. I mean, Cabbage have done some really good things in the past, but I mean, based on the next story, these guys are not the only ones struggling with with lending, though. So if we look at a story over on CNBC, banks are struggling to keep up with the tidal wave of business loan applications for COVID relief. So Bank of America received 85,000 loan applications in one single day, uh, seeking a total of 22.2 billion loans. Uh, JP Morgan Chase was only able to get its portal up by 1pm on Friday, the first day the relief program was actually going live, while Wells Fargo missed the opening date altogether. Uh, The UK has seen a similar demand for stimulus uh, funds. The coronavirus business interruption loan scheme has received 130,000 applications and granted only a thousand so far. I mean, it's it's, it's it, uh, this is difficult, isn't it? Because we've been in this weird period for the last couple of years where anybody with like a, a vague PowerPoint and a, a, a you know a small office at a WeWork can basically start a startup. So, are we are we really sort of? Do you think there's a period here where? A lot of companies just weren't really businesses and and didn't shouldn't be surviving this horrific frost that we're kind of having, um, or or is this like a a thing where viable businesses are being put out of business? Um, because I I, I I'm going to sound I've been I've been in a bit of a grump today, so I'm going to I'm going to be a bit more grumpy on this one. But if you've run out of cash as a small business within such a short period of time. That spells to me you weren't managing your reserves particularly effectively for 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 something that could inevitably happen, whether it was you know losing a big deal or you know massive sickness in in some sense. So, am I being unkind here, Izzy, or or actually do you think a lot of companies that are going out of business are, are probably not as viable as the the founders make them out to be? So I think in the fintech space, it's particularly sort of um, fragile and um, you're working very, yeah, I mean, you, you're always at the mercy of, of your last funding round. Um, whereas in the real economy, it's quite the norm for most small businesses to not have more than a couple of months worth of cash reserves. Even that, I think the average small business has is, is, is hand to mouth, just like most households are. Um, and that's why we've seen such pain because, um, we've just, we've levered the system to such a degree. It's so just in time. There is such pressure not to have reserves in the system because reserves are opportunity costs. They're, they're, it's effectively money that's not working. Um, that almost no small business can, uh, you know, survive that. But then the it becomes a sort of ethical dilemma when you when you talk about bailing out sort of small companies that um fintech startups that have never made a profit because one of the big critiques is obviously that uh, all the support is is being geared around sort of materializable profits from the last few years, a percentage of or whatever. If you've never made a profit, how do you how do you get support and how do you kind of evaluate? I mean you you're basically gonna have to triage the world of startups and there's no way you're gonna be able to bail them all out and you're gonna someone somewhere is gonna have to very subjectively decide which ones are too important to fail and which ones are not. Yeah and and I mean if they're non profit making the subjectivity to too important to fail is, I mean, it's not like in 2008 when we're talking about banks with 10, 10 million people, are we? So, um, so it's, I mean, it's going to be a really, really 
ju- you know, justifying that lending. And to Ollie's point, actually really being able to underwrite the risk of organizations who have, have not made profit yet is going to, you know, if if people could do that really effectively, the VC world would be very different, wouldn't it? You know, um, Simon, what do you think? So to Izzy made, I think, a really good point, which is most businesses run very, very lean and run a just-in-time model. There was a report by JP Morgan, I think, in 2016, looking at the average cash uh, availability or cash runway for um, businesses under 100 million turnover. And the median was 27 days, and 25% of businesses were less than 13 days. And these were, you know, perfectly viable businesses in in a, in a regular economy and maybe at some other point. Now, that asks the question, um, I think, to, to Izzy's point, does that mean our model of what the economy should be is broken? Or does that mean uh, those businesses were broken and wouldn't survive any serious shock? Um, it, it, I, I don't know that anybody knows the answer, which is what makes credit scoring so hard. But I do think there's, a, there's another thing going on here as well, which is the government has uh, in the UK and the US stepped in and said, we are willing to put lending behind these uh, organizations. But there's been an execution problem, um, both on the government side and on the lender side, as we saw with Wells Fargo, as we've seen with many others. Um, but there are some really um, sort of green shoots. Um, there's a small bank, Citizens Edmund, has started advancing those to small businesses where they can take the risk and they have a long-term relationship with those business. So it's almost a return to banks that know you and have a deep relationship with you can help you out in a different way. Um, and it's like the old branch manager model is really making a comeback and, and making a difference for small businesses. And I think that's a really powerful signal as to where the market might go. Um, but on the other side, if you look at the British Business Bank, I saw stats in City AM that it's now more than 200,000 applications and about 2,000 granted, uh, with the banks looking at the British Business Bank saying what's going on, and the uh, the British Business Bank sort of saying, yep, this is hard, and um, the bank's also struggling to make change. And it reminded me of a, of a metaphor. It's almost like uh, everybody, it's all hands to the pumps at the banks. And the banks, no doubt, if you're working inside a bank right now and you're in some sort of credit decisioning process, you're working your backside off to help these businesses. So shout out to all of those people. But it's all hands to the pump, but the pump is broken. And the, how much effort is the, that can you really focus on, on fixing the pump? I think that's a fair question. I don't know if there are other views on that. Well, I mean, there's there's definitely ways that the distribution can be improved. I think, but I think your uh, again your your attitudes. You know, banks have notoriously been very uh, uh, sort of um, reserved when it comes to sort of risk profiling, and and rightly so. You know, that's what makes a, a good book, right? Not having to default on anything, and therefore not having to uh, take take those losses. So, you know, suddenly being in a situation where the government are saying, uh, you know, no, we really need to increase, you know, distribution of funds. It kind of goes against everything that I think they've been, you know, their religion really for a long period of time. And 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 like I say, this is not a criticism. It's it's what makes lending a business, right? You want to lend to people who can afford to pay you back, Ollie. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I think we've made the point a couple of times. It still comes down to um, the banks are still businesses. Um, and also from the last financial crisis, I believe society wants them to be businesses, i.e. they want them to be profitable, employ people, not incur huge losses and fail because we all know what that does. So it's one of these where even with a government-backed loan, I can sort of de-risk the downside so I can protect against losses, but I need the business to be able to exist to pay the interest to generate the income for it to be a viable proposition. So 
again, and I agree with the point of being able to turn that ship around on just how you make a lending decision where you still have to, the, the big bit when I've been speaking to banks, the problem you have here that is in the consumer and the small business world is they know that quite rightly, the regulators in three or four months time, hopefully when this has passed, will come back to them to say, did you make responsible lending decisions? Now, the answer, if you extend too much lending government back, the only answer can be, I did my best, but maybe not. And so it's, I, it's a rock and a hard place, I think, to a certain extent. I agree. I mean, luckily enough, there's there's suddenly a hundred million pounds knocking around in the next story that uh, might help a few people. So uh, the next story that we have over on Reuters was that new banking competition remedies pool has been announced as nationwide abandons plan to build business banking system. So the British lender claims coronavirus has made its entry into business banking unviable. Uh, as a result, it will return the 50 million BCR grant it received to develop a product. Uh, the strategic pivot from nation wide has cost them 70 million, which is a pretty huge amount given how far down the line they were. Uh, Metrobank also returned 50 million of its grant earlier this year. So shortly after this news broke, the BCR announced it will use these funds to create a 100 million pound pool, which will be open to new applicants again. Um, So the new pool's objectives and processes are expected to be announced at the end of April. So, I mean, interesting sort of development on this one. The BCR have come under quite a lot of fire for the uh, process that they sort of went under now for these things. But really, I mean, can Nationwide be blamed for this? It sort of feels like the inevitable downturn that we've seen in this sense. I mean, I I was speaking to um, people internally about this one this week. I mean, is it more prudent that Nationwide have decided they're not going to get to where they want to and therefore giving the money back rather than inevitably just spending all the money and realizing that at the end? Simon, what do you think? I mean, if that's a genuine assessment, then yeah, you kind of want somebody to not burn funds that in theory are being managed on behalf of the UK population and the economy by an independent body um, to that could be given elsewhere where a difference could be made. Um, so if it is indeed that. Um, also, you've got to think about an organization that uh, is potentially looking at what does it need to freeze and what does it hold and what was discretionary spend. And this would probably fall in that category as part of a strategic review of, of everything they're doing as they go into sort of crisis mode. Um, but but I wonder what happens next. Like, what does the BCR do with this now, especially in these times? How does it decide what the next fund looks like and who will get it and how it will be divided and how long is that process going to take? So um, it's a lot of unanswered questions. I mean, li- likelihood is, I reckon they will, from a, a purely guessing here, uh, you know, pool D was sort of 5 million pot. Um, I reckon they'll make it a small application i think they'll do five to ten million pots uh do 10 to 20 of them and try and spread the risk as much as they can across them because if you look at the uh the pools that have performed a little bit better in terms of being able to spend the money or have have impact it appears to be pool c and pool d who seem to be sort of performing a little bit better but ollie have you got any thoughts on that i was just gonna say i think that's a great prediction i think what the reality here is the whole bcr initiative is like break rbs break it up, use the money to create competition for small business banking. I'm going to be doomsday, but there aren't many small businesses anymore. They're not opening bank accounts. We've just talked about why they probably can't borrow money. So logically, it makes sense that and creating a new banking proposition probably isn't the answer. But as you say, I think driving the money into smaller packages and spreading the bet, like if you're in a market like it is now, 
I wouldn't be um, putting all the money and some of it's mine, right? Because I'm a UK taxpayer behind a new bank right now, but maybe I'd put it behind a hundred or a thousand startups who can help actually, if possible, solve the problems for small businesses because of the crisis. So I think that's a great prediction about um, their setup to be able to do that, right? Because Paul, they just could copy and paste Paul D again. I mean, it's interesting. They've spent £70 million to not build a bank. Like, that's a lot of money to realise that you're a long way down. I mean, what I wonder what learnings from this or what technology they've invested in that actually can get rolled back into to Nationwide. I mean, on the BCR stuff more broadly, Izzy, um, h- how do you think that's, that's uh, going so far? I, to be honest, I haven't been looking at it very closely, so I don't want to... Um eat up time with like pointless uh, commentary that isn't very insightful. But um, I mean, my only takeaway from from all this is that um, we're in a new kind of era. And um, the question really is, is how much of a recovery are we going to have and how quickly? And if, if we are on a V-shaped sort of recovery, then, you know, there is a good argument to be made that you can still launch new uh new new banks into that into that sector but if if some of the behavioral changes that have come about are going to be more permanent um and we're really going to be looking at a sustained downturn which i I think is now the case um it's going to be tough but that said I, i i for once i want to be optimistic and i think changing paradigms always create new business models so so it isn't entirely wise to um not continue funding new banking um i think you could create new specialist lenders who are sort of charged with the task of restructuring the economy for a post-covid you know hygiene uh <clears throat> concerned world i don't know it's, it's it is going to be interesting i mean there's always going to be smes they're always going to need a level of support they're always going to need a, a, a level of kind of lending i guess the challenge probably that they were facing into with nationwide is probably their business model fundamentally changed during that period of time didn't it in terms of what they thought that thing was going to be there for um and i, I think particularly nationwide given the brands that they have have got more of a uh you know a, a sort of a community setup that they, they would be sort of pursuing so it, it is interesting that they've done it i i I personally still think it's I think it's good that they've they've done it now rather than three years from now um so um, you know well done for them for sort of pulling the plug while there was still a plug to pull essentially so um moving on then there's um probably uh, a thousand things that we can talk about more or that are going to be coronavirus related I'm sure when we sort of come back to it but we'll take a quick break and we'll be back with you shortly This episode of Fintech Insider is brought to you by MyTech Systems, a global leader in identity verification technology. With over 80 million users and trusted by the largest banks in the world, MyTech provides tomorrow's identity verification for today's uncertainty. See how it helps over on mytechsystems.com. That's MyTech, M-I-T-E-K. Uh, if you're listening to this and you want to see what our faces look like, then we've actually got a bit bored in the morning and just started to do a breakfast show. So if you fancy coming over and, and catching that, we're doing it uh, twice a day. So once for uh, 8.30 BST over on my LinkedIn. LinkedIn Live is hilarious, as Ollie will definitely kind of attest to. Somewhat challenging if your Wi-Fi is not great, but we've got on some pretty amazing guests so far. So if you want to come and start your day a little bit brighter with everything that's happening with uh, COVID and the corona crisis, uh, head over to my LinkedIn at 8.30 every weekday day. 
Okay, back to the show. So next up, we have a story over on AltFi. This is fintechs take action to combat the effects of coronavirus. Fintech has solved it, everybody. We're good. Um, so a wealth of new services have arrived to help consumers and businesses uh, weather the ongoing pandemic. I, I mean, it, it is amazing in this space that so many people have actually gone out of their way to do stuff, I have to say, because what, um, what we've often seen in these, these times where um, bad things happen is really things freeze up. Um, so actually being able to see so many organizations step up to the plate and do things, or even, uh, I mean, there's some amazing people coming forward and putting forward re- very vast amounts of money to, to kind of uh, combat these things, or even putting their production lines into um, to effect to uh, print different things to allow people to, to sort of continue doing their businesses. So, you know, a wealth of these services coming forwards, it seems to be having a bit of an impact. So last week, uh, Tully launched a wellbeing network, which Ollie, you'll be well-placed to, for us to, to talk about, um, to help uh, payment relief to 17 million UK residents impacted by coronavirus. Uh, other effects include uh, Coconut has launched uh, help with income support for the self-employed, um, and a various number of challenges and fintechs are offering either freebies to get people going or interest-free holidays on overdrafts, which uh, allows people a little bit of respite from, from kind of what's going on. So, I mean, Ollie, you're probably going to be uh, best place to have a conversation about this one. Do you want to start us off? Yeah, sure. I can certainly uh, tell you guys what we've been up to with Tully. So um, Tully pre-COVID uh, uh, was a digital um, debt advice company. So we provided free advice to consumers with severe financial difficulty. Uh, what we've found during the crisis is that that minority segment of people that are financially squeezed has suddenly become the bigger majority. Um, so we've partnered with uh, banks, energy companies, employers um, to help customers check their eligibility and register for payment relief online. So um, the challenge we're solving really here is that for consumers who need uh, support, um, the government have stepped in on the income part of the sort of household PL, but on the expenses side, um, consumers still need help. The thing that happens next is you can't pay your bills even though you've got some income support. And so uh, what we're doing really is helping consumers avoid long call center queues as the call centers just get overwhelmed with uh, calls, replace that with a simple online verified uh, eligibility check for payment relief, register for people for payment relief, and then notify their creditors of those requests and help creditors get those set up. So for creditors, they get notified of people needing payment relief. So again, they can manage the demand into call centers and uh, manage that digitally. And they can also use the open banking based budgets that we're building for consumers to plan for what happens next. So what we're really worried about is getting relief to people right now when they need it, but also helping people get back to the new normal afterwards. So having a verified budget underneath that. So when payment holidays after 90 days finish, banks can engage in a tailored way with consumers to help get them back on their feet. Um, so that, that's what we're doing with um with Tully and we've launched with um, some really great partners which are helping us already reach um, tens of millions of people and um, and provide a way to more easily register for relief. Uh, that's great. Uh, what's the, I mean, we've talked about this on the, the breakfast show this week, but what's the response of that being uh, publicly? Because um, like you say, this is something that people are kind of crying out for help with, right? Yeah, I mean, it's been fantastic. I mean, we've had kind of a lot of support from quite a few areas. We've got um, creditors we're working with who are signposting and referring people to this service really just to help them free up capacity 
in the call center for the most vulnerable and push people to this to be able to register much more efficiently. Um, we've also had really great response, I have to say, from some of our kind of, I guess you describe them as big tech partners. Um, we use Microsoft Azure. They've, they've stood up and um, provided extra capacity free of charge. Intercom, who we use for communications to the customers. So everyone really supportive. And then, um, yeah, publicly kind of um, really great support. I think the thing we're rallying around is um, how do we make sure as many creditors as possible help refer customers to this service? Because that means customers can register for relief across their creditors in a single place. Um, so it's one thing, obviously, having to queue up for 10 hours to get through to uh, my mortgage provider to have to then knowing the next bill I have to do is deal with my energy company or um, my credit card or into my telco um, that you're talking about kind of many days of stress where if I can register for that and get um, set up fast I think that's a lot of the solutions we've talked about it's not just helping get relief to people you need to do it really really fast you know within a payday cycle yeah agree uh, Izzy I'm just wondering because um my my brother has a small business and he's facing some of these problems and he has definitely found that you know he can't get the access to the to the help um mainly because of administrative issues but i'm just wondering in terms of how you how you manage that queue issue because so and I, i'm literally just asking because i don't know um are you what, are you about to ask for a, for your brother alone or like live on like because uh we, we, <laughs> i mean we we could test it out straight away but no sorry no i mean i'm sure he'd love that but um but um but seriously like how does that alleviate the pressure because i would i would have thought that the um the key problem is that there's a bottleneck in terms of the people on in the corporate that is doing the processing so even if you can sort of administrate some of that sort of um, application process off-site, so to speak, that still has to be, I mean, how does it actually accelerate the process of, of getting yourself processed by the by the key company that makes the decision? Yeah, that, uh, that's a good question, good point. So uh, really the uh, kind of still the largest part of that process is talking to the customer, understanding how they're impacted, assessing how they're impacted and making a decision on what that relief should look like. So um, that across most of the creditors is managed through a call centre, which means most people just can't can't get through. So we can alleviate that. Then the next part of the process is, yeah, the creditor making a decision on what that relief is and getting it set up. They're actually quite well equipped to do that because they do offer to some customers payment holidays today and they're able to plan for and expect no payment on certain products. So for some creditors, certainly they're better equipped and that's easier for them to do. Um, and I'm not saying there's not going to be some level of a process and a queuing system to get through that. But I think what we're finding is customers are just struggling to get to the first stage, which is to say, I need help. They can't even get through to their credit to say, look, I need some help. We can triage that, massively accelerate that and provide the data to the banks and creditors in a way that does make it um, much easier for them then to execute on that relief, set the payment expectation to zero for a few months. So basically, you would be sort of so triaging again. I mean, that word keeps coming up, but effectively, um, you would be reviewing how genuine their claim is and how urgent it is in terms of survival of their business, and and then push and, and getting a bit of understanding about the business itself, and then pushing it on. So you're kind of the, the middleman. Um, to, so there's an element of due diligence that you're doing, but do you bear any risk if if you make a bad determination in the long run uh, no so and so i should clarify today we're focused on consumers so households um 
we do help self-employed as well, but um, I guess we do help businesses by the nature they're run by people and households, but we're focused on the household. We don't take risk on that. What we found is that um, what we're doing is we are checking eligibility and relevance of payment relief for the customer, which is as much a benefit to the customer because the reality is most payment relief is still really just pushing the problem down the road. So it's giving you a temporary solution to cash flow, but it's still incurring on your energy bill arrears because you're still consuming goods and on your credit card or your loan, still incurring in most cases interest that will be backloaded onto that product. So um, yeah, we're not we're not taking kind of a principal risk in this equation. What we're doing is making sure that the right people get the right relief um, that they need to in this temporary position. And the other thing we're really focused on again is um, how we then get people back out of that after the initial shock period um, and try and get back to this normal status where they're going to need to pay because they need to serve their debts and pay for the goods that they consume. Hmm. Well, there's there's been um, quite a few sort of players come to the fray, haven't there, Simon? There's lots that um, different organisations are sort of doing in this space. Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, Rails Bank have an initiative. DXC Technologies have done some stuff. Altfi covered several of them. And in fact, we were even involved in a couple. Um, I think there's uh, there's definitely something to be said for that problem of you know call center queues being four or five hours. Um, in many cases, you know, people there are uh, examples of people who um, had their call answered at four o'clock in the morning and then had fallen asleep and had were on a continuous cycle of that. And when you um, you know when you can do nothing but that and can stay awake all day then maybe you can get through and be one of the lucky ones that gets the relief but actually having somebody build a digital technology that outsources that away from the lender could be really helpful and what we've also seen as well is since india shut down uh, a lot of um larger lenders call centers have also shut down so the problem is magnified and their digital platforms didn't allow for for a lot of this inbound so actually the the problem is is really quite significant in a number of ways and through things like uh, open banking, you can provide a lot of the information that a lender would look for in a really neat package um, that makes sense to the lender to then be able to very quickly make a decision and push the button rather than just be in the uh, uh, mode of collecting information. Uh, So I hope we see a lot more of these, but I think there's something to be said for how quickly fintechs have been able to do this stuff, Um, but it doesn't solve all of the problems. And I know a lot of the banks are working really, really hard. Uh, A lot of lenders, a lot of uh, organizations are working really hard to do it. But there are these small things that you could do that could make a, a real, real difference when it comes to just packaging that information in a way Way that uh, a lender or other type of business could very quickly use to make a decision from doesn't solve as everybody said the what happens next when we start to get back to steady state and i think that's an interesting conversation to to pick up from as well sure i agree uh, there, there seems to be a lot of players out there doing interesting things at this point tanya i mean are you seeing uh, more sort of players sort of coming out of the woodwork on this do you think Oh, absolutely. And also, as I work for a media company, we receive huge volumes of press releases and announcements. I'm sure Easy does as well about some kind of initiative that every fintech under the sun there is implementing. Some of them are more for PR, I have to say, than in reality. But there are quite a few ones that are genuinely good. Like, for example, as uh, what Simon mentioned earlier, the project that you guys did with uh, Credit Kudos, uh, Chime in the US, for example, is doing something very proactively, as in giving the clients the relief money before the government has actually released that money. And it's been, it's going into like the select, I think, pilot of their customers within hours. 
uh, and then they're hoping, my guess is that once the government relieves, releases that money, they can then keep it. Uh, so there is lots of stuff going on. And again, as Simon mentioned, there are lots of technology companies that are offering their services for free or greatly discounted. So it's good to see how much stuff is going on. But it also brings that uh, point that 11FS has been making about digital banking and digital finance uh, being only, what, 1% finished? <laughs> so you can see, right, uh, all this stuff with the call centers not working and with the processing not happening, uh, we do need genuine digital things to happen to if something like that happens again, we can rely on the uh, on the internet to, to to help us pull through. Mm, yeah, it's it, it is uh, it is interesting to see. Um, you know, I mean, the conversations I've had with with uh, people over the last couple of weeks, it doesn't seem like this is going to be something that they then uh, reverse a lot of investments in digital that they were doing. I think, arguably, if they'd done a lot of the stuff that they wanted to do a, a long while ago, then they'd probably been quite different circumstances right now. I mean, I've got um, slightly bored of hearing my own voice say it this week, but, um, you know, banks have kind of moved forward probably in the last three months further on their remote working policy than they did in 15 years of strategizing on it. So, you know, what else can they use this as a catapult for to really deliver on? Um, it's going to be interesting to see, isn't it? Because I think a lot of the excuses have sort of melted away of why things couldn't really happen. But, uh, I mean, it's... It, it, um, I. I do you see, and it's probably an interesting one to to sort of talk about as a collective here. It's like, do you see big banks using this as a as a catalyst for kind of innovating, or actually maybe not innovating, but delivering on some wholesale, really big infrastructural changes that they need to? Because now's the time to be more cost effective than ever, right, Ollie? What do you think? Yeah, I think they whether they can, I think, is an interesting question. I think they're going to need to try. So I think the thing that stands out to me is kind of speed of reaction and change of direction or change of policy or approach. So even if you just take the um, the kind of remote working piece, the amount of larger organizations that have struggled with that, where um, in theory they should have business continuity plans that take care of this, that all should have been tested because that's what's required as regulated entities. I mean, I got a note. I got an email from the FCA today saying, "Have I had to instigate any of my business continuity plan?" And my answer is yes, every single piece of it, because this is a disaster. So, it's kind of an interesting one. I think they're going to need to find a way that, within the regulatory environment, can they adapt faster? I think that's the test um, for for everyone going forward. It has. I mean, disaster is, you know not underused word here, right? So I think this has gone beyond everybody's disaster recovery process, hasn't it? Which is um, what happens when literally nobody can go to work because most of the time anybody's, you know, disaster recovery things, whether it's from a system or, uh, you know, if it's from a system perspective, there are still people there to fix it until it's still there to, to operate on it. From a systems, uh, from a human's perspective, people are still allowed to go to work. So this has gone far and beyond kind of anybody's planning, hasn't it? But uh, what, what do you think, Izzy? So I'm, I'm, you know, my contrarian view here is that um, I wonder how much of this has been sort of self-inflicted upon uh, institutions because what I've noticed, there was a fascinating Reuters story yesterday about the uh, what was really going going on behind the scenes um, in the government when they were trying to figure out when to do lockdown and what to do, right? And everyone sort of presumes it was like a government-mandated thing. But the reality is that 
we were self-imposing self-isolation before any any government mandate uh, said we had to right and it this was definitely led by the private sector and in many ways it was led by the banks so before anybody was shut like doing work from home sort of contingency planning it was the banks so the banks would have like one guy with sniffle in the lift and they closed down the whole thing and everyone would work from home and um and I, so I was making this case that it was very much private sector led and I thought it was to do with liabilities and, and health and safety and all that kind of like the liability side of the balance sheet. But then somebody else mentioned to me that um, actually it wasn't even like employer led, it was worker led because what what happened is that anyone who had already the capability of flexible working, there was suddenly a sort of um, very quick sort of trade-off in terms of, well, I could go to work, but I could stay home and not get sick. And when you have like a workforce en masse sort of not complying with with any sort of official directive to come to work, well, what are you going to do, especially when that workforce can say, well, just look at your own health and safety guidelines. This is why we're not coming to work. So you have to adapt and you have to be nimble. And and from a, from a reputational perspective, I don't think banks could have done anything else other than support like wider work from home um, structure because suddenly they were caught between a rock and a hard place. So I'm comparing this to a sort of virus-led general strike by non-essential workers who can work from home. Yeah, I mean, it's it's uh, particularly in London. I think, um, I mean, I like I say, I live out in Norwich, sort of out in the sticks. And, uh, you know, I've, I've been at home for, I was at home for two weeks before uh, it really caught up to here. Um, and actually, I think because of the very sort of international nature of, of London and actually the, uh, you know, the, the uh, you, you know, European uh, impact ahead of it impacting London, I think the the sort of spidey sense was tingling a lot quicker there than than anywhere, meaning, like, say, people who have family members in Italy or Spain or, or kind of further afield were, were very much on the either very, very distracted or wanting to not be, you know, not be in and amongst other people, which makes a lot of sense, isn't it? I mean, our early warning shouldn't be it happening in other countries, should it? But uh, but it's a, an interesting one to see how they responded. I mean, I, I do think on the PR side of things, I think it is an interesting one, as you say, because the companies, almost I, I think a lot of companies in this period are going to be judged on the other side of it based on how they've responded, how they've acted, how they're treating their employees, uh, you know, and actually inevitably how they're dealing with probably, you know, most, what was it, 50 or 60% of companies in the UK are going to have to furlough or make redundant folks. Um, so how they handle that during this period is going to be incredibly impactful to their brand going forward if indeed there is a brand, right? And if there's a demand shock uh, in the economy now, that becomes a supply shock later. It becomes also a question of once you've got a lot of people who are furloughed workers, how many of those do I need after the the new normal comes if it's not a V-shaped recovery? If we don't just um, – somebody once described it as almost as if the UK government was hoping that they could put the economy to sleep like a laptop and then you'd open the laptop back up and it would it would just spring back into life. I, um, I, I've definitely been told if you turn it off and on again, it works. Yeah, so, that's uh, totally, totally it. Uh, but I was watching uh, something by um, TradeStream, who are a really interesting company who look at global supply chains. And they were looking at the uh, the global supply chain, and they were saying that you can see so many indicators of there not being a new normal um, that looks like the old normal, which is 
you know, average payment terms in the global supply chain have moved from 30 days to 45 days. I mean, that's a massive difference for businesses over the long term that lasts more than more than 12 months. Uh, and what will the new normal entail? Do you need to be a business that can be 100% remote? Do you need to be a business that can operate 100% digitally? And what will happen next time? And I'm sure this has um, kind of built some muscle memory for a lot of banks and organizations. I was speaking to a bank who went from not being able to get uh, remote working happening for six years, and then in six uh, days, they'd got half of their staff remote. But it's also interesting that the the UK regulator named a lot of um, bankers as key workers, people who work on payments or look after the mainframes and the infrastructure. Actually, is that something we want as an economy, or is that something you want as a bank, and is that something you want in your PR, to Izzy's point? I don't know. I mean, it is going to be fascinating to see how people have bent data protection, not 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 as in um, you know GDPR or, or or literal data protection, but actually, I mean, I've seen very large organisations shipping hundreds of of towers out to people's houses to allow them to work continue working. So you know they have hard drives with data all around the UK right now, where before they've been you know very concerned about a laptop leaving the the sort of office. So it is going to be so in- the the fallout of this, I think, is going to be so interesting because either. Either a lot of these things have been very, very overblown or there's going to be massive security problems in six to nine months of time. Because, you know, for sure, people who are sitting at home who uh, have been trying to pick holes in these things, um, you know, when it's been a big corporate network, doing it through somebody's dodgy Wi-Fi now is going to be uh, going to be a lot easier, isn't it? So um, it's going to be well, going to be fun. Look at Zoom. Yeah. Sorry to interrupt, but like it, it, it is, and, and this is like the definition of Schumpeterian, you know, creative destruction. You are literally living in the moment of Schumpeterian destruction and um, things get recreated, but they get recreated on a very fragile, non-robust basis. And then it's a question of trial and error again until we find out what's wrong with the new new paradigm. Mm. Well, one one part of the paradigm that I'm definitely enjoying in the new world is not that two-hour train trip into London every day. So uh, if we could take a few things from this going into the new world, that would be wonderful. Slightly less commuting, more jobs in Norwich, that would be nice. But uh, if you could do something about that, Izzy, then that would be great. Tanya, sorry. Yeah, I just wanted to add that by the time this is all over, I know everybody enjoys working from home every now and then. But I think by the time this is all over and people can get back to the office, I think people would gladly endure you know two hour trip to london to just potentially get away change of scenery change of pace uh, change of surroundings and environment and people around you right we all need that stimulus the sensory one from and communication from different places so i, I think at first everybody would be really happy to go back and then who knows i agree but one other thing that it could do is um dislocate uh, London as a hub because there's now no reason why you couldn't have a banking hub in Norwich or whatever. Sorry. No, whatever, is he Definitely in Norwich. Like, I've been <laughs> as crying. long as Norwich has the same amount of nice coffee shops and uh, nice hipster cafes and everything else. It's got Delia Smith. What more do you need? 
Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, there's another story over on the Telegraph. So somebody who actually seems to have been pretty busy during the, all of this period in terms of uh, uh, making sure they're communicating people is the FCA. So the FCA have come out saying they're now going to be allowing selfies for identity checks uh, amongst a couple of other measures that they've, they've sort of put out there. So the regulator has relaxed its identification rules, allowing users to submit their own photos as well as scan documents sent via email. Um, it also announced it will delay enforcement of an investment policy. And this investment policy, I guess, in the current climate is uh, probably a sensible one to, uh, to, to, to sort of pause on. But um, currently, wealth managers must inform clients each time they're holding drops in value by 10%, which um, at this stage would be every few days, I guess. So that's uh, we're probably saving uh, quite a lot of bits of paper and quite a lot of trees by not having to send those bits of paper out there. But um, So the FCA made these changes after receiving hundreds and hundreds of requests for, from trade bodies to, to do so. Uh, I mean, Simon, what do you think? I mean, the FCA seemed to have been pretty active during this period. The FCA have been on it. Um, there's a communication every other day. Um, they're massively proactive. This just seems really, really pragmatic. Uh, if you, if your only way to operate when most of your branches are closed and you can't sign wet pieces of paper, but somebody in a compliance or risk department thinks that a, a wet signature has some sort of legal um, advantage over a digital signature and to have your regulator come out and give clarity that could make a meaningful impact to banks' ability to deliver to people, to vulnerable people's ability to get lending or to just do everyday banking. I'm I'm massively supportive of this. Um, I, look, there, there could no doubt be unintended consequences of this stuff that I haven't thought about, um, but hats off to the guys at the FCA. I think they've um, really shown the advantage of having an innovate function at times like this when you have to be able to put out guidance regularly. I cannot imagine how hard they must be working over there because I've not seen uh, a body globally as communicative. Maybe that's because I follow them on Twitter and the algorithm knows that I enjoy reading this stuff and I'm a complete nerd. Um, you're, being, you're being targeted, Simon, definitely. Yeah, so, no, uh, it's targeted ads from the FCA. Arnold Schwarzenegger is following me around with like PPI <laughs> protection. <laughs> um, but I'm impressed. Easy. Well, yes, I mean, moving fast and adapting is all very good. And there's nothing like a crisis to sort of highlight how um, annoying and, and, and restrictive middle management and bureaucracy and administrative sort of um, frictions are. Um, however, you know, there is the other side of it, which is um, a lot of fraud and a lot of companies, you know, it's like when we try to determine what killed the patient, you know, was it really covid or were they having a heart attack and actually they happen to have covid anyway and the same is going to happen with a lot of like you know banks and and uh, not banks sort of companies going under did they die because of coronavirus or is it because there was something else going on behind the scenes and we won't be able to evaluate it and so a lot of fraud and bad practice is going to be buried um now is probably not the time to sort of point your finger fingers and and, and really be too mindful about it because the free rider problem is, is just huge now because, you know, when it comes to applying for a mortgage holiday, almost everyone is eligible. And there's a, you know, whereas I think there's an ethical sort of issue with, with applying for a mortgage holiday if you haven't had a pay cut, you know, a lot of people are not going to consider that um, an issue. So um, this will all end up being a cost to the system overall. Um, and, and and you can see the sort of opportunity opportunism already 
you know, coming about in the conventional kind of scam area and people kind of flogging test kits and that are fraudulent and all that sort of stuff. And the same is going to happen with, with AML and, 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 you know, now would be the best time to sort of move funds and, and, and do it in a sort of, you know, cause, cause a lot of stuff is going to get buried as a result of this. That's what I'm going to say. I mean, it, it does um, time, times like this and, and set up like this, like identity has been something we've been talking about, you know, digital identity has been something we've been talking about for 10 years and not really made any um, any sort of real progress on it, have we? Um, you know, arguably, I mean, there's very, really basic things that are happening now where, I mean, we've got queues of people trying to get in and out of Sainsbury's and actually Sainsbury's knowing how many people you had in your household legitimately to allocate how much food you should or could be taking. Because, I mean, you can only take like three loaves of bread right now, but if you've got a family of 10, um, there's not, I don't have a family of 10, just in case you thought that was why I looked so old. Um, but, um, you know, if people do, legitimately, they need more food, don't they? So, you know, actually, we're, we're in a period of time here where a lot of the stuff that we have been talking about in the past arguably is the answer to the problems that we've got in the present now. Um, it's just we, we haven't really – the future never really turns out to be as advanced as you thought it was going to be, does it? So. But uh, all right. Uh, on that note, guys, I think I'm going to wrap up there because um, I think we could probably take a lot of time dwelling on coronavirus for the next sort of uh, 50 to uh, 50 to 60 minutes of, of it. But uh, we've all got lives to go and live. And uh, I think um, it's about ready for my once a day uh, exercise. So I'm going to go run around outside for a little bit. So on that note, that wraps up this week's new show. Um, where can people find out a little bit more about you, Tanya? Uh, well, www.fintechfutures.com is the media site that covers all things fintech, uh, the site that I run, and also on Twitter, on LinkedIn. Very, very good. Uh, Ollie, where can people find out more about you? Yeah, best place to find me is LinkedIn. Search Ollie Betts with a Y on the Ollie. And then uh, if you're interested in what I spoke about with Tully, then go to tully.co.uk. Fantastic. Izzy? I'm the editor of Alphaville, so go to fdalphaville.ft.com. And um, I'm sometimes on Twitter on at Iza Kaminska, but not so much as I used to be. Very good. Uh, and Simon? At S.Y. Taylor on Twitter or email me simon at 11fs.com or check us out at 11fs.com. Very good. As for me, you can find me over on LinkedIn. I'm David Briar. Uh, I mean, at this point, if you don't know, then I don't know what's been going on. So uh, I clearly need to... Uh, sort of uh, re re rekindle the spelling of my name at some point but uh, all right guys uh, thank you so much for listening this week if you like what you've heard subscribe to the podcast and don't forget to leave us a review we do love reading those reviews um if you have any suggestions or feedback uh if your feedback is just stop talking about coronavirus i don't think we're going to be able to do that in the next couple of weeks guys unfortunately um but hit us up over on social media anywhere for 11fs or email us on podcasts at 11fs.com thanks very much for listening everybody goodbye Keeping up with all the noise and news from the world of financial services isn't easy. It's easy to get lost in buzzwords, jargon and industry speak. So sometimes you just need a quick human rundown of the biggest stories. Well, you are in luck. Bite-sized is our very own weekly newsletter that takes the biggest news stories from financial services and tells you exactly what's happening, why it matters and what comes next. Bite Size goes out every Friday at 11am, so you can enjoy it with a coffee as you wrap up your week. Stay up to speed with the fast-moving world of financial services and subscribe today at 11fs.com 
forward slash newsletters. That's 11fs.com forward slash newsletters.